Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the EuroStory podcast, Stories of Politics and Human Rights in Europe. My name is Emilia Matax-Ferrandiz, and with me is my co-host, Zoe J. Hello, everyone. As always, the aim of the EuroStory podcast is to bring you closer to cutting-edge research on Europe and introduce you to what researchers have to say about topical issues currently affecting Europe and the Europeans. Our guest today is the multi-talented Johanna Heikkonen. Johanna is a researcher with the Law, Governance and Space Project, or Space Law, at the University of Helsinki. He is also a practicing and teaching architect, and he is here to talk to us today about the fascinating relationship between architecture, history and national identity. Welcome, Johanna. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation for this podcast. We're glad to have you here. Um, so to kick everything off, can you tell us a little bit more about your research interests and what you're currently working on? Well, as you already mentioned, I'm working with the Space Law Project and, and, and of course, my background being an architect and also an art historian, and uh, I did my PhD thesis of late antiquity, so those are basically my interests. But, of course, all the other things that has to do something with architecture, whether it would be, for example, housing uh, during the 19th century and 20th century, all these sorts of stuff sort of interlude and collide with each other all the time. So it's a little bit messy to uh, give a sort of a short version in a nutshell, but something like that. A master of all trades. <laughs> yeah, knowing you, I think in a nutshell, it's something that doesn't define every time you explain to me something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a European, it is difficult for me to be objective when picturing what will be the general trends that represent Europe internationally. I can imagine that people think of Roman and Greek ruins, medieval castles, Muslim medinas or Romanesque churches. These are obviously not the only trends, but perhaps the most popular. In that sense, I would like to ask you as an architect, which ones do you think that are the architectural trends that most represent what is Europe internationally? And what are some iconic examples of European architecture? Well, that's a very, very good question. And of course, there is no right answer these kind of questions but of course it's up like the classic and of course when we are talking about space law and, and, and antiquity of course at the same time so so I would always choose the Parthenon anyway in Athens that's a sort of a classic because then we are talking about democracy and and, and, and classical civilization and everything like that but it's not exactly that sense European architecture if we think about it it's you have to remember that the classical antiquity and the architecture that's also African and Asian at the same time. So, so, so like, like with all the sort of the classical styles, I, I think that we are going to talk about this a little bit more further on. But, but uh, of the sort of the European stuff in architecture, uh, this is a very, very good question. I, one of my favorites is actually sort of Romanesque style, as you mentioned already, the Romanesque churches, because in many senses, after the classical antiquity, this was actually the first common European architectural style, which is, of course, in Italy, in Spain, in modern France, of course, Britain, Germany, definitely Germany. 
Germany have has huge loads of Romanesque architecture. So I would actually probably vote for the Romanesque architecture, but not forgetting about the Gothic architecture, because I think that that's the sort of the travel, travel catalog stuff anyway. You know, in like France, that you have Notre Dame and all these sort of the other very, very famous Gothic churches. Mm, I'm sort of making a sort of a chronology here, but... I wouldn't actually say that Renaissance architecture, then it's not that much of European compared to the Romanesque architecture, because we have to always remember that with Renaissance architecture and the later developments of, of Renaissance architecture, that's actually pretty much international. That's cosmopolitan architecture, if we are talking about the Americas or colonization or everything like that. So, so, so I would put my bets on Romanesque churches. Wow, that's a very original point because, yeah, the Parthenon I was kind of thinking also because I thought, oh, we're not talking about the Parthenon marvels this time. But uh, with Gothic architecture, you know, I remember when I read uh, Jude the Obscure and at some point, well, this, well, this guy that is very depressed in Oxford because he cannot really get in and study there and stuff. And then he talks about Gothic architecture saying like, oh, you fools, you try to imitate the classicals, but, uh, you know, at the end you, you end up with this Gothic stuff that is just a mere and really badly made imitation of uh, classical Roman and Greek architecture. And that's actually many, in many ways uh, true. Like we are talking about the sort of the birth of Gothic architecture and the sort of the classical legend is, of course, always uh, the abbot uh, Suger uh, in Saint-Denis, just outside Paris, the sort of the royal burial church uh, of the Capet and other dynasties of the French monarchy. And all the art historians have been seeing that, that, that sort of the best... Westwerke, the Westworks uh, of the churches starting from the Romanist period. It's the resemblance, for example, to the triumphal arches is, is pretty high. Yes, Gothic architecture is also a classical architecture, but sort of with different building technology, it's something like that's actually much more inventive compared to the traditional architecture. If you are thinking about all the sort of the Marvelous variations of ribbed walls and, and, for example, the British fan style and these kind of things. It's, it's like the architectural historian uh, Christian Norbeck Schultz, who said about the Gothic architecture that it was built despite of stone. And this is something that the Romans couldn't actually do. So, so, so I would be in some kind of a way an advocate for the Gothic architecture, Gandhi, <laughs> is your remark anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. What about more modern style, like Art Deco, that had so many, so many different variations? Even in Finland, you have this kind of Jugendstil also wave in uh, your buildings. Yeah, yeah. We have to remember that uh, that's also with the Art Deco style, for example, it, it goes quite well, actually. For example, the, 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 the discovery of the Tutankhamun uh, uh, burial, for example, that goes always along with the sort of the Egyptian style. You find from the Art Deco style, Egyptian stuff, actually. For, not exactly for the very, very first time in Western architecture, because, of course, the Romans did it a little bit and probably 
some influence later on, but that's definitely the 1920s stuff. And and whether it would be classical or, or or whatever else, Art Deco, as the name says, that's decorative style. So it can be everything. And in this context, when we are talking about something European, it's, I think that that's international, very international indeed. Mm. The Americans were sort of masters of this style. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's maybe dive into some of our tougher questions. I've got one to kick us off that starts by turning away from Europe actually towards um, empire and Europe's legacy as a source of colonialism um, as well as being part of the national and regional identities that we've just been talking about. Architecture and urban planning have often played really crucial roles in establishing empires beyond people's homes. So the Roman Empire very famously spread its building styles and architecture and its plumbing systems and its roads throughout Europe as it conquered it. Um, The British, the French, the Belgian empires and so on used similar methods to establish rule throughout Africa and Asia. Um, How is architecture used by those kind of regimes to consolidate empire and what kind of impacts does that have on the way the people who are then forced into colonization have to how does it affect the way they live in their own homes yes that's a very very good question uh i think for example the sort of the first example of the roman colonization i think that's well uh emilia is probably far better informed of this subject in that sense but but I think that it, it was partly also that the colonized people later on wanted to be colonized in that sense, that the sort of the mimicking of the Roman architecture, the domes, for example, or the luxuries and everything like that. But probably with the later examples, when we are talking about the empires, of course, well, the easiest example could be actually the British Empire, which also exported its architecture all around the world. What was the phrase? It's something like the sun never sets. Uh, in the British Empire, mm. and that was basically true until 1947. Oh, they must have copied that from us because this was the the king Charles the you know yeah. the fifth, and <laughs> who said that Spanish Empire was the spine where the, the Sp- yeah the Spanish Empire was the the sun never set there. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, Pro- probably that's one of the spoils of the war because the British Empire in its early days uh, defeated the Spanish Empire basically. So, so probably, yeah. Took it we as ha- a loot. <laughs> we, we, we have, uh, yeah, they have looted so many things. Uh, uh, definitely. We have to remember that the word loot is, of course, Hindi, which comes from India anyway. So when the British started to steal whatever gems and, and what was it, Clive of India, the, the sort of CEO of the East India Company. So, so they quickly copied the word loot uh, from Hindi to describe that you are, well, basically stealing stuff anyway. But this, of course, Imagine includes... stealing a word to describe stealing. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, the most you know, imperial thing I've ever heard. I anyway. It's something like, I'm completely relying on this one, on Shashi Tahor, uh, the, the Indian member of, of, of parliament and, and high executive uh, of the United Nations and, and what other excellent stuff. And the writer of the, what was the name of the book, Inglorious Empire, where he sort of gives the Indian side of the colonization anyway. But it doesn't tell anything about the sort of the architecture. But I know about the architecture in that sense that, of course, 
the East India Company people and later on the British government after the 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 the, the what was the revolt in 1850s in India the, the not to say boy, but well, anyway, uh, when the British government took over and, and later on Victoria became the Empress of India and all this other stuff. So along came the architecture anyway. There are, of course, many, many examples, for example, with the officials building these sort of Cotswolds kind of cottages in India and, and probably the most famous example, and now we are combining several things together, would be Edwin Lachum's the sort of British-themed architect um, who started the architecture was sort of this uh, Charles Rennie Mackintosh kind of variations of British country houses and later on turned into classicism, especially with the war memorials uh, all around Britain and, and France and, and other places. But he was sort of appointed to head the building of the New Delhi, which is basically classical architecture. That's definitely classical architecture, but with a mogul twist. So there are sort of some Indian elements. And that's probably sort of, of the modern examples, that's a very, very good example of, of, of colonizing architecture. Now, there is, of course, the beauty of it anyway, in many senses, that sort of the Indians then decolonized it and used it for themselves anyway. This is a sort of a very ongoing discussion, like there is the sort of the side of the Shashi Tahor, and then there is the historian Neil Ferguson, who is explaining, but they should be thankful because we brought English language and railroads and everything like that. But that was, of course, only in order to colonize the place. So the Indians did it actually quite well that they took the tools of colonization and the tools of architecture also in itself and, and used it for their own ends after 1947. But everybody, you, you, you too, anyway, know the sort of the New Delhi architecture anyway, the sort of a palace of the uh, governor and, and all these sort of parliament buildings and these kind of things anyway. That's, that's sort of the famous Edwin Lutyens architecture. He never actually designed nearly anything outside Britain. Uh, that's exactly the same time when comes Le Corbusier, Bauhaus, and the modern architecture. And then we have this very old-fashioned British architect only doing this kind of stuff. And, and, and there was actually this very, very excellent biography. I only read a small part of it, but written by uh, Lachens, something like Grand Grand Child, who also explained that even by the standards of British colonial administration, Lutyens was a horrible racist also. So, so it's, it's, I don't, we, we just have to trust her word on this one anyway, but, but, but it seems to have been so. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, that goes well with my next question, because we have been touching this topic of colonialism. And nowadays, there's this uh, general trend of uh, decolonizing and de even dismantling and remaking all institutions representing colonialist trends. Like, for example, here in Belgium, where I am now, there's all this trend of like these uh, museums of Africa that they need to be dismantled and reinterpreted and stuff like that in order to bear with, bear with the sign of the times. So what are your thoughts on that, on that end? You know, dismantle building and, and reinterpret it like the... Uh -huh. Uh, do you mean the, the sort of the, the thing that's sort of returning the loot back to the 
countries or, or, or the, the architecture itself. I, the so architecture people. itself, you know, like, like uh, for example, we have had this problem in Spain with the Valle de los Caídos, with the mausoleum for Franco, that, you yeah. know, they took the corpse out and... Now let's see what happens with the building. And here, for example, they think about that with colonial buildings that represent, you know, the colonies they had in Congo and stuff like that. And and I guess like this is a trend in many other countries about that. But in that sense, you know, what made me think is like, where are the boundaries? Because if we think of, you know, like m most of the libraries in Oxford, for example, were built with money of slavery and, and, and guns and stuff like that. So, you know... Yeah. What do you yeah, think no. about this trend of decolonizing, in fact? And, and well, yeah, anyway, the Germans have been very, very excellent <laughs> sort of doing this, that first they tear down the, 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 the modernist architecture during the Hitler period, and after that they tear down the sort of the Nazi architecture. And after that, uh, after the sort of the wall came down, sort of tearing down the, the, the sort of the Soviet DDR architecture. Now, in this point at this point in me there comes the architect and this is not ecologically viable they are buildings okay it's they might have been bad buildings but the idea is that you can change the meaning of building also like the colosseo quadrato uh, uh, esposizione universale di roma 1942 and onwards anyway so now it's what is it it's it's the prada main offices or something like that so, mm, so yeah. shoes and bags well that's sort of nice uh, sort of even making the mockery of its original idea but i mean there are, there are bad things all the time but now now we are living in an ecological disaster and building industry is something like 50% of the carbon footprint. So let's also think about these things. And if it has been, a, for example, a Nazi or Stalinist or whatever building, you can always change the function of the building. You know, it's something like, like the Romans did. Now we all immediately go back to the Romans. Uh, think about Pantheon in Rome. Yeah. So it's a pagan temple, but it's turned into a church to facilitate the sort of the present idea during the 7th century when it was church, Santa Maria de whatever, how many martyrs. Uh, so that's one of the possibilities, and it comes along, which is one of my interests, of course, is building preservation and conservation and restoration. So already during the 4th century, the Romans were actually among the first to make decrees and laws about building preservation because they knew that, okay, now we are Christians, but these temples are actually pretty magnificent stuff. So let's try. <laughs> and they to are well built. Yeah, and they are very well built, actually. So probably they couldn't, of course, save all the buildings, but the spoliation of the buildings, the spolia, anyway, that that the tradition of antiquity sort of continued also also through that course, anyway. But in the end, it's something like, as an architect, I have to say that I'm sort of against of. Demolition of buildings. It's it's it's. We can't afford it at the, at the moment, anyway. So. Wow. Yeah. So I'm also really interested in the distinction between the public and the private sphere in architecture and design. 
There are some really iconic public-facing architectural designs in Europe. For example, I'm thinking of the glass dome above the Reichstag in Germany or parliament buildings in general are often designed to symbolise things like transparency and openness. And then there are some spaces that maybe cross the public-private divide a little more, like Viennese cafes are usually privately run, but then are also really quintessentially Viennese, Austrian, European meeting spaces. And Finnish saunas, of course, are maybe a similar example. So what are some of the narratives of European or national identity around those distinctions between public and private spaces in architecture? Yes, that's a very, very good question, especially when we are always talking about the public architecture. And Well, here comes to antiquity again, but it's usually always classical architecture, whatever the regime is. But this is a very interesting notion of the of the Viennese cafes. I'm a great fan of the Viennese cafes. And, and, we and all I, are. <laughs> yeah, we all are. Uh, it's something like wonderful places. And that's very typical Viennese, of course. It, it, it's more, probably more like the whole, whole German-speaking area of, 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 mm. of, of Europe. Um, but I wouldn't actually... Well, them actually private or anything like that. That's definitely public. Uh, uh, and of course, the birthplace of, of European modern thinking and whatever else. Uh, but of course, these cafes existed also in Britain and France starting from the 18th century. So, 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 but probably they stayed in Vienna longer than, 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 than rest of Europe. That's also a very, very interesting point. But is there a difference? Was that the question? That is there a Yeah, are there sort of differences between public and private spaces or is a building European whatever it's used for? I, I think that it's something that's very, very interesting that sort of the concept of privacy that's that's so different probably throughout Europe anyway. It's 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 because I have been in this before this space law, the, the group of public and private in the Roman house, where it's very interesting that of course nobody actually knows for sure, but for example the atrium of the Roman Roman dorms is the place where most of the people can enter, but not probably beyond that one, that the buildings would be semi public or semi private or something like that. But I think that in throughout Europe, actually, the, the concept of what is private space, it, it actually differs quite a lot. I don't know, what, what would you, Emilia, say anyway? The concept of, of uh, your, uh, your, your house in, in Helsinki or, for example, back to Spain. Yeah. So how people come and greet each other and everything like that. Because, for example, in Helsinki and between the countryside, there is, of course, a difference that like the Roman atrium of a dorm was the same thing it would be in the countryside, the sort of the front porch thing that everybody can enter there, but there you have to sort of shout, well, is anyone home here at the moment, but you can't go further on anywhere. But I think that also the Spanish concept of the private space, for example, in a dwelling, and now we are talking about the sort of the foundations of architecture in the sort of German philosophical context anyway. So, so it differs from part to part in Europe, I suppose. Well, in Spain, I think, you know, people still romanticize that time when people in the village still didn't have their house locked, their houses locked. And then this kind of private space was really intermingled with the public space of the community because people were entering in each other's houses. But that is something 
I don't think even my grandparents have lived that time, you know, because also we are a country of uh, that had a lot of uh, rural exodus, you know, after the, the civil war and stuff. So this thing of people living in the village are still kind of this mix of mythology, ancient history and stuff like that. You know, I don't really think that people in the villages live like that anymore, you know. Because think- th- this, is, this is an interesting example. Uh, uh, both of you, you have been in Naples, I suppose, anyway. Uh, yes, I haven't. Ah, okay. No. Well, Emilia knows this anyway, that when you are in the sort of the Spacanapoli or the sort of the right city center, the old city center, where there are the sort of the ground floor apartments, something like usually somewhere 20 to 40 square meters, how they are completely open to the street. And you can see sort of old people watching television and eating their dinner, and it's completely open to the street. That's, for example, what I was thinking about, the sort of the different concept of what is actually private space and what is public space in, in modern Europe. Because uh, it's it would be something like like the Dutch. Uh, both of you, uh, you have been in Netherlands? Yeah. No? Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the traditional... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We Dutch, have been both. 17, yeah, 17th century, these red brick houses like in Amsterdam or any other sort of old part of, of, of a Dutch city where you have huge window spaces. It's something like it's nearly sort of modern architecture that the whole facade of a building is glazed. And the idea is, of course, always that, well, anyway, that was the sort of the Dutch idea. And I suppose it's very, very right that, that, that uh, one of the reasons is, of course, that you can see inside people's houses and admire uh, of course, they have very, very good taste in furniture, for example. But of course, you can also prove <laughs> that you are not doing anything bad anyway, and stuff like this. This, I, I yeah, find it, but it would never. That's happen. very Protestant. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's very Protestant. That's Finland, very Protestant. Like Protestant. we don't have any anything to hide. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you know. In the case of Naples, we can attribute this thing of like the open houses to. A Catholic thing is more like people live in the street. They're like everybody's social. Everybody lives like like a. So I don't. I don't think. I don't know if like this will go with religion in that way. But it's true that the Protestants they have that. And I remember the in Britain they had these taxes on uh, on windows in the Tudor period as well. Like the bigger your windows, the biggest tax you pay, and it's a thing of yeah. power. Like like I'm so pure that I can have like all my house full of windows. And of course, if you couldn't afford the taxes, that's that was throughout the Europe, the window tax and also the chimney tax. You had to pay tax per chimney. So uh, the idea that uh, you would make the facade to look sort of completely symmetrical facade with windows, but the part of the windows were, of course, fake. They were just painted windows. So it looked very, very expensive, the house but it didn't have to pay as much window tax. That's, for example... You're making me think about private and public space in Finland, if it really changed with seasons, because, I mean, obviously in winter, everybody's in their houses, you know, mm-hmm. and, and everybody's private because everybody's in doing their own thing and stuff. And I think I have not even really talked with my neighbors in Helsinki, you know, uh, at all. Um, just in the laundry room. That is our social spot, I will say. Um, but, for example, even in the Moki, you have so much space that all the mockies are done in a way that normally you don't have a mocky nearby. I normally see that they are quite, you have your space and then maybe you need to walk a bit and then you will find another mocky. But they are not next to one to the other. 
Yeah. So it's yeah. private still, no? Like you have your privacy the whole time. <laughs> or, exactly. or, or, no, or maybe, I, I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, uh, I was starting to think about it. It's something like me and my neighbors in my house anyway. Well, because I'm the... I'm the I'm the chairman of the board of the house, so so one of my responsibilities is irritatingly to say hello to everyone I see in the staircase. <laughs> so, so and some people. You're, you're get, very yeah. courageous to take that role. Yeah, yeah but I don't it's think it's Helsinki tradition. It's something like you always make the difference in Helsinki that those people are from countryside if they don't say hello in the staircase. The idea is basically that if you are inside and within a domestic building. You, of course, have to greet someone. But if you are outside or in a public building, then you don't have to. So there is a level of sort of a thinking difference between the public and private. And then on the other hand, because those people who have moved from the countryside and usually their next neighbor is something like half a kilometer away or one kilometer away. So they don't have this thing. Uh, but anyway, to insult the countryside in total, <laughs> anyway, it's something like usually in the countryside all around the world, usually the neighbors are their worst enemies also, I suppose, because whatever land disputes and these which have been going something like 200 or 300 years. So, so would, would be, I think that that's also recognizable in Spain, land disputes, angry neighbors in the countryside. Oh, yeah. Of course, and you know, like my parents live in the countryside, and they have had like a case for a river that is between the property of my mother and the property of the neighbors. And what I love about it, I don't love that, that case, obviously, that has given so many headaches to my mom. But that I love is like it's so Roman law, and you saw how, in fact, the Romans were having lots of these disputes because. Lots of the texts of Roman law are about land disputes, obviously, because the neighbors were annoyed to each other, you know, like your tree is in my property, your bees have come to my land, you are <laughs> making cheeses and the smoke is coming to my house, you bastard, it smells really bad and stuff like that. It's, it's like plenty. So I, I love that exactly. because it's full of life. Or in Australia, that man stole my sheep. Oh, now <laughs> you have in Australia also. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we have absolutely no shortage of disputes over like territories and fences. But I yeah. suppose Australia's foundational property dispute is the uh, the legacy of colonialism and the fact that the land was stolen by British colonizers and never properly returned in any meaningful way. So any discussion of property and building in Australia you can't talk about it without talking about indigenous land rights and the fact that exactly the yeah. perceived abs like when british people came to australia and they tried to claim that the land was unused and that the principle of terra nullius could apply they what they saw was an absence of architecture and uncultivated land by british standards there weren't sheep and farms in the way that British people understood them and they used that on purpose to to justify this this very dodgy claim and, and Terra Nullius was dodgy at the time historically and not just by modern standards because the First Nations people were using the land just not in the way that colonists expect expected them to and so all of our ideas about property, about Australian identity, about the state uh, sort of like yeah, it's, underpinned it's, it's, by this tension. 
Yeah, it's it's something like very very fascinating anyway because it's something like uh, I'm dealing quite much with things to do with uh, property ownership and 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 all these kind of things because we have to always remember that this is actually sort of relatively new. For example, I think that well, Emilia is an expert in this, but the sort of the property ship of of, of land and everything like that, it's not exactly mm-hmm. like the sort of the modern concept of of property ownership. Like like we are talking about starting from the Franciscans who dispute the fact that they have this like like in Umberto Eco, the name of the rose, they have the dispute that did Jesus Christ own his clothes or not? So we are talking about is it Christian to own things? And then we have the British philosophers like Locke and all these people who actually start to formulate again the sort of the concept of ownership and of course ownership being the sort of the basis of capitalism and so on mm. of course being enlightenment philosophers like like Locke being named or mentioned along the sort of for example the constitution of of, of Carolina uh, during the 17th century where it's exactly sort of stated the ownership and and of land and everything like that but also including ownership of slaves so no one can dispute the fact that somebody owns slaves there is of course in modern sense a sort of a contradiction that's that an owner can own Mm. slaves of course so so very very complicated and very very fascinating things and this is of course sort of in australian case sort of uh, applying this at that time sort of modern concept of land property because we have to remember that Europe before that one is a feudal system in that sense that the king gives the vassal the right to tax the land but not exactly to own the land and then it sort of suddenly moves to property ship we have to remember for example the city center of London what what are these dukes and counts and all these estates who actually own large chunks of the city center of London like like what was it the duke of westminster or something like that who owns something like close to 100 hectares of land in London itself. And, and, and these are very, very fascinating, but then applied to this colonialism, which we were talking about earlier on, that sort of applying these new rules or old rules or whatever. I think that I sort of got lost a little bit with the <laughs> property <laughs> ship thing. But, but yeah, yeah, I think that we went architect. a bit far. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I guess... From the colonial perspective, colonizers are going to colonize regardless of what they find. The British, for example, like they they used the perceived absence of cultivated land in Australia to um, justify the terra nullius principle, but they also colonized plenty of places where there was what looked like more European style land use and building and yeah. development. So there's. There are the ways that colonizers justify things and then there is what colonizers actually want to do and the way they talk about property and land, I guess, is the justification, but it's not the reason for colonizing. The reason is wanting to take stuff and doing yeah, it. Anyway, I would like to dig that in my in my in my next question because you know we have been talking about this the right of every man. And in that sense, there's, you know, um, Supposedly, the Nordic countries, and now we are here, we're talking about Finland, are very proud of their socialist concept in, in general, you know, that is, they are very socialist. And in that sense, I would like to highlight this new building of Helsinki, the library Audi, that 
okay, it's a very weird space for me because it doesn't really go with the idea I have of a library. It's more like a cultural center of a social space. But as a friend of mine has described it, it really challenges the idea of public space and public library because you have so many facilities that everybody can access and use. You just need to go there and get a card. So do you think that this building is made thinking that it will represent this socialist Finnish identity and... In that sense, how does this cope with other architectural trends that are going on actually in Europe? I really like the library building anyway. And yes, yes, it was purposely uh, planned as a sort of a multifunctionary space where you can, for example, use the sewing machines or whatever else anyway, <laughs> uh, and and make 3D models or, 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 or everything possible. And now they had the problem to facilitate everyone. So, for example, there were one knifing actually between sort of drug dealer and drug user and, and, and how to make <laughs> place completely safe, of course. But it has been very, very successful. I personally know the architects actually who designed that. We were students at the same time at the architecture department. Excellent people. Very, very, very. They are actually now... Uh, With that fame, they are now actually building a library in Lyon also at the moment. So, 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 I really think I'm all up for libraries. Libraries, public libraries. That's that's what the state should do with architecture, schools, libraries, and everything like that. And that's throughout all Europe anyway. Depending, of course, on the time anyway, because all of Europe anyway has quite a lot of this sort of post-war social democratic welfare state attitude to it, which also meant building these public spaces. And if you think about, this was actually one of the last libraries, of course, in Helsinki. There hasn't been that many libraries for the past two decades or something like that. So I'm more like worried about that one, that are they actually building enough of these buildings, public spaces anyway, because nowadays throughout Europe, throughout the world, we are, you know the concept of wow art. And you know the concept of star, no, no. the star architect, star architect, and and all these people like like Big uh, uh, uh in Denmark or Zaha Hadid, the late Zaha Hadid, and all these people before this, the sort of the super famed architects, they were actually building public buildings for public use. One of the most beautiful. Examples in post-war Europe is, for example, British, uh, this concrete brutalist architecture where the socialist governments anyway built these sort of housing projects and public buildings and concert halls and everything beautiful made in, in very, very rough concrete. And if you think about nowadays, the Sahad Hadid or, or Bjarke Ingels or all these famed architects, their clients are sort of whatever Gulf state dictators and Russian oligarchs and, well, you name it, <laughs> not exactly social democratic stuff anyway, not for the public at least. It's, it's, this is worrying actually. Architecture is always the representation of the sort of the political state uh, in culture and I think that you just mentioned a very, very good example, the libraries. Throughout Europe, there are not actually that many public libraries in building process at the moment. And I have said it many times before, it's like more librarians, less wars. 
Sounds logic. <laughs> you should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that mm-hmm. Penguin Books will, will sponsor you. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, now it's time for the fun questions. And uh, the first one is, is like, if you will recommend us a specific book, either academic or popular fiction, nonfiction, that has influenced the way you think about Europe or that it inspires your work. Well, uh, with the work anyway, I have to say the sort of the classic, the Erwin Panovsky's Renaissance and Renaissances, which talk about just about these things. We were talking about the, the, the sort of the several different revivals of, of, of classical antiquity and whatever variations there are, sort of a collection of lectures uh, in America during the was it 1950s, 1960s. But now I started to think about could there actually be sort of popular sort of whatever fiction or something like that that I would recommend. Uh, good God. Uh, like your peer, M- Mika Baltari or something like that? Like, like well, uh, this is a European fiction. The, the Egyptian would be actually, but there's a movie, so it goes faster anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that, it's that, not a very fast movie, I have to say. It's a long one, in yeah, fact. Because, yeah, yeah, that's true. It's the, this, this 1950s Hollywood megalomania anyway, so they're pretty long anyway. I completely forgot the names of the sort of the Ken Follett, Pillars of the Earth, and these books which are located onwards from the Norman Conquest, where they are talking about architecture, how the Romanist style comes, and then in the other, there must be something like close to 1,000 pages, but very sort of exciting, exciting fiction which is always intervened with architecture, development of architecture, development of economy and whatever else. I actually very much enjoyed those books. Ken Follett was actually more famous for writing these spy novels, uh, uh, you know, like this uh, Cold War spy novels, if I remember right. But that would be, I can't remember, Pillars of the Earth was the other book, but what was the name of the? It's very much... The same kind of a book, uh, Emilia. You remember the the what was it? Church by the Sea. Uh, the one telling about ah the, uh, the Catedral del Mar. This um, exactly that. Yeah, one. this is a Spanish writer, but I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember his name. I haven't read the book to be honest, but uh, because it was read... so widely popular in Spain that I have this tendency of like I don't want to read <laughs> it now. Well, it was very very enjoyable. Uh, I definitely I read the English translation of it, and 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 no, I definitely recommend it because they are in a similar style, sort of telling about the sort of very very long process of uh, 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 building the cathedral uh, in Barcelona. So so mm. I really enjoyed that book anyway. Finally, if you could go back or forward anywhere in time, where would you go and why? Well, within this context, when we have been talking about colonization and, and especially classical antiquity and architecture, uh, I was explaining, and I have been explaining several times because it's sort of a wonderful European story in many ways. That you imagine the sort of the 
8th, 9th century, the sort of the destruction of the Roman Empire and probably in many ways anyway, the sort of the end of the known civilization and entering the sort of the legendary mythical dark ages, which were definitely not that dark uh, as people have been claiming. But it would be actually the first unification after that of Europe, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, whatever you want to call it anyway, visiting Ravenna in modern Italy and exporting probably an old temple and its columns to Aachen, which is nowadays, of course, the borderline between Germany and and France and also called Aix-en-Chapelle, of course, by the French name, and building a sort of a, his own version of late antique Roman architecture. So it would have been an interesting thing to be the architect making the journey from, from Ravenna back to Aachen, across the Alps, carrying the columns <laughs> to be reused in Germany. I think that that would be, that would be at the moment my choice anyway. But with very good clothes and 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 warm clothes and 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 probably some comfort or something. Yes, like that. that would Not be very cool. Not the man actually carrying the columns, but sort of controlling the carrying of the columns. Anyway, is that a good answer? Yes, it it is a very good answer. Wow, I'm very devoted. You know, <laughs> like yeah, I think I would have to bring back my modern snow boots and stuff with me to cross the Alps. I don't think I could go back to the era of Charlemagne without. Like yeah, what, my hey, North Face coat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. But you remember, Hannibal did it. Hannibal did it, for example. But the well, the other way, of course. So, 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 so. I think that there was some, some kind of a report that actually uh, the researchers had found evidence of elephant poo in the Alps. That, that, that <laughs> it might be even true that actually Hannibal really took the elephants through the Alps. Sounds unbelievable, but. Well, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt, maybe you will be prepared now to cross the Alps. You have been quite a while now in Finland, so yeah. you are used to, to cold, you know, so you have your training to go back to that moment in history. I think it's the mountain hiking that's the problem, not the cold. <laughs> oh, but well, if you go with Charlemagne, you will have people helping you with oh, that. Oh, it'll be on. fine then. <laughs> yeah, but the, the classical way to, of course, use it, the Brenner Pass anyway. So, so I think that that's enough pleasant anyway there are these high-speed trains doing the trick nowadays so, yes. so. i'd gladly but do it in a high-speed train yeah it, i actually did it with my students anyway not the brenner pass I, actually we went uh across uh from austria uh through the uh, ex-yugoslavia and to venice through venice to verona anyway so the classical way to make the grand tour to go through the alps well we actually sort of went by the Alps, not exactly through the Alps, but, but the idea is about the same. I look forward to being able to do that when we can all travel again. That sounds really cool. Hopefully soon. So thank you very much for joining us, Johanna. It's been such an interesting discussion. I hope that we have been, uh, you know, like, like correct with you. We have driven your discussion to the right path. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you, everyone who's tuned in to listen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, 
you can catch up on all our other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Pug Podcasts, and Radio Public. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Eurostory and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Eurostory, as well as our website, eurostory.org. You can also follow the host on Twitter. I am at Mataix underscript Emilia and Zoe is at Zoe Charlotte J. Also, you can follow Johanna in the pace of, his, uh, of the Space Law Project at the University of Helsinki. We would love to receive your feedback and hear your thoughts on this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. This project is supported by the Academy of Finland Founded Center of Excellence in Law, Identity and the European Narratives. We would also like to thank Antonio López García for the theme music and Carlas Rote and Maria Erma for research assistance.